Breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately, for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lauren Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Biologically, women are meant to have babies in their 20s. The current phenomenon of women delaying childbirth until well into their 30s or even 40s is a result of longer life expectancy and delayed or no marriage. In fact, one-third of American women now have their first baby after age 35. Many women who delay must utilize a donor egg to achieve pregnancy. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brian Kaplan of Fertility Centers of Illinois to address the question of oocyte preservation. Where are we, what are the obstacles, and where can we expect to be in the near future? Dr. Kaplan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, Obviously, the best time to freeze eggs is long before someone usually even considers the possibility. And many women don't even begin to contemplate the option until they're in their 30s or older. What criteria do you use when evaluating a woman who desires cryopreservation of her eggs? Well, first of all, you know, cryopreservation of eggs has tremendous potential for a number of scenarios, and it all depends on which scenario we are freezing the eggs for. I think it's important to put that in perspective. The, the various indications or potential benefits of egg freezing, which is enormous, involves really two major groups of uh, patients. One is the woman who wants to defer her pregnancy until a later age in life because they do not have a significant other we talked about or simply have a social or professional need that requires them to delay childbearing and so they want to preserve their eggs. 
And just from a demographic point of view, most patients who walk into our office, women who are in their late 30s or early 40s, with this scenario and are inquiring about freezing of their eggs. And the problem with that is that the best time to freeze eggs are the younger the patient is or the person is. Because we know that a woman is born with a set complement of those eggs and she loses them every month of her life. So by the time she reaches menopause at around 50, there are no eggs left, but there's also a deterioration in the quality of those eggs. And so the better eggs are there earlier, and that's when you want to freeze them. So that's the irony is that patients seek that treatment later on when they should be seeking it earlier. So ideally, we'd like to see patients who are under 38 years old and have certain hormonal parameters reflecting what we call ovarian reserve, which shows us there is still good reserve and, if I could use the word youthfulness, in the ovary. And so FSH levels, which are one of the markers which reflect that, should be ideally below 10. Now, do you make a decision based on one FSH level, or do you find that you have to do a number of FSHs to see if you're really going to get a good result? The better way to do it is to look at the whole picture. So I think age in itself is the most significant factor. So if the patient's older than 40, even though she might have a lower FSH level, the potential for success with frozen eggs is minimal. And is there any other way of evaluating egg quality? Do you do a monitored ultrasound cycle to look at follicles, or you find that that's not helpful? It's not very helpful. There are two or three markers that we use for to give us some indication of ovarian reserve, one being the FSH level itself, which is a blood level. There are other serum levels that we measure, one's called inhibin. And the ultrasound, it can be very predictive by looking at the ultrasound picture during the woman's period, or menses, which looks at what's called the antral follicle count looking at the number of immature eggs that are sitting in the ovary in a quiescent stage that might have the potential to grow. So taking all four of those. If you have a patient that's FSH a little bit on the high side, say in the teens, do you look at these other parameters or is that someone you would just decline? I would decline it. And the reason I would decline it at this point in time is because the, the attrition from freezing is, is still so significant that to add that component to it in a technology that is still very early and very much in its infancy the results would be would be dismal as far as we're concerned. Now, my understanding is that approximately 70% of cryopreserved oocytes even survive the freeze-thaw process, and that, of course, in contrast to cryopreservation of embryos and sperm, oocyte cryopreservation is technically much more challenging since the oocytes are more sensitive. And there are two methods of cryopreservation, the slow freeze technique and vitrification. Can you talk about those two methods and what you recommend and what's most commonly done? Traditional freezing protocols aim to achieve several things in a minimal amount of time. Firstly, the human egg is the largest cell in the human body, and so it is full of water. This is problematic as the water will turn to ice upon freezing and therefore will disrupt the egg's internal membrane structure, and that's what we worry about, is there any damage to the egg? And therefore, we use what we call cryoprotectants, or you could say the anti-freeze solutions, to replace the water in order to reduce that ice formation. These membranes in the egg, especially in the mature human egg, are notoriously impermeable to such agents, in particularly the cryoprotectants, which are large molecules. And so we worry about the cryoprotectants, the icing of the egg, and so the traditional way of freezing the eggs, where it was called a slow technique, which is our standard way of freezing, has been shown to, we worry about the, the cryoprotectant and the icicle formation within the egg itself. But if you look at the babies born from this technology, about half the babies born have been born from the slow cooling technique. 
and the, the, the results are still pretty good. The newer technology that's evolving not only with eggs, but also the way we freeze our embryos today is called vitrification. Vitrification, which refers to a form of cryopreservation where cooling rates are very rapid. So you're looking at 20,000 per minute. And that ice does not have the chance to form. And the mixture of the cryoprotected and the egg forms a glass-like gel. And so this theory behind it, where you could do it very fast without formation of crystals, has been very much in vogue in the last year in this technology and seems to be taken to the next level. The first reports of success with this were from the South Korea. And, from a, and not only that it's been very successful from a practical standpoint, vitrification is very simple and actually removes the need for expensive, programmable, controlled freezers. If a center does the slow freezing and they get good results in their hands doing it, it's not problematic. It's just vitrification seems to be more efficient. Now, Dr. Kaplan, we've been talking about the different techniques for cryopreservation. How concerned are you about the deleterious effects on specifically spindle development and then the subsequent increase in chromosomal abnormalities? What does the data show? It's a very important question, and that has always been the concern that we've had in all the new technologies with um, IVF. And the data is not out there yet because the number of babies born from this technology are approximately 500. So this is still a very relatively new technology. But if you look at the data so far that has been reported, it has been very positive from that point of view. The original data where people were concerned about spindle damage were in mouse oocytes. And it was reported that those mouse oocytes had a high incidence of spindle damage. And there's always been a controversy whether you can extrapolate animal work into the human being. And that's been one of the, the critiques of that study, because in the human being, no one has really seen that increase at all. And in fact, in, our, in the last meeting of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, there was a, a very good review of all the babies born after cryopreserved eggs. And in some of these, actually, PGD was done on the egg. And in others, they followed up the babies with karyotyping, CVS, amnio, etc., and the data was very promising in that it really showed no higher incidence of chromosomal abnormalities at all. And this was the largest review of chromosome studies of cryopreserved eggs that have been done. Now, 500 babies, that's not, that's not very many babies. Over what period of time is that? And I think the bigger question is what percentage is that of the eggs that actually survived the thaw? It is very, very much in its infancy. And I think the consumer and physicians who refer to this technology need to be aware of it, that it's still considered experimental from um, our societies, and it should be presented that way to the marketplace. That compares to the number of babies born from IVF, which is now over 3 million, and the number of babies born from cryopreserved embryos, which is extremely successful, which is in the range of a half a million babies born. So the data is very consistent in those patients. But the success rate, it's, to give you an example, you're correct, 70% survive the thaw. The pregnancy rates vary tremendously from center to center. And centers, if you add up all the centers, add up to 500 cases, each center might have 12 or 15 or 20 babies. So the data is very sporadic and hard to look at. But it seems as though the implantation rates are pretty significant in these patients. So pregnancy rates vary anywhere between 20% and some have reported even 50%, depending on on the age of the patient or which patients they're doing it in. Which really is not that bad. And, and that somewhat answers my next question. When you present this to a patient, do you present it as an investigational process, or do you feel that it really is the standard of care to offer women who want to preserve fertility? It's a necessity to present this, that this is considered still experimental and it's in, in its infancy. 
we present it in light of the fact that the data seems to be rapidly progressing towards a very positive outcome, but it's still, we cannot honestly tell the patient what the, the, the exact data is that of survival rates, pregnancy rates, miscarriage rates, because the numbers are so low. So it's presented to the patient that this is experimental, this is an insurance product, really, that it might not work. It's hard to actually give you an exact number, but what is, we look at what is the downside of doing this in the patients who are worried about being older later on when it comes to their fertility. And the downside is really the stimulation protocol of the drugs and the cost of the procedure. And if you take that out of the equation, that is what they're doing is they're paying for that potential that they might have these young eggs available. I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Kaplan, for helping us understand the state of the art of cryopreservation. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.